Welcome to the Things Learned Podcast. My name is Steve, and these are some notable things that I learned during the 51st and 52nd weeks of 2011. In this thrilling conclusion to Season 2 of this podcast, as well as the things I learned in the year 2011, I'll tell you all about Red Robin's Bottomless French Fries, the Ping Command, Gas Gauge Arrows, the Combo Fix Utility, Napoleon Dynamite's Budget, Scrapped Mario Game Concepts, Ultrabook Specs, The Cost of a Dell Laptop in 2001, Fantasy Starcraft Leagues, Registering Apple Products, Recommended Skype Profile Picture Sizes of the Era, and VNC Apps on the iPad. It's all coming up next, here on Things Learned. December 18th, Red Robin has bottomless fries. Just so you're all aware, this thing learned is not sponsored. The holiday season is a challenge for many waistlines for a variety of reasons. Frequent opportunities to gorge oneself at family gatherings, holiday parties, and through the willpower-breaking heist of baked goods from the freezer. Today's thing learned has nothing to do with all of this despite occurring around the same time. Instead, I discovered Red Robin, a burger chain established in Seattle, Washington over 80 years ago. I don't remember any local establishment setting up shop until around this time in my area, and I suppose December 18th was the day I discovered that they have bottomless french fries. Of course, that's just a figure of speech, aside from the fry container literally having no bottom, just to fit in with the concept. But it's a legit thing they offer in the form of unlimited fry refills. On paper, that sounds like a really good deal, but there are some asterisks to consider. When one orders something that comes with fries, one does not receive the fries until the entire order arrives and the amount of french fries one gets at the outset is often quite sufficient on its own. The free fry refills are accessed when the waitstaff arrive at the table and ask if you would like more, at no additional cost, of course. Have you ever noticed that the amount of time between asking for a fry refill and when it actually arrives is really, really long? I swear this is intentional. When you start to think about it, It corresponds with your body's ability to process food and whether you have the capacity to eat the fries that come with the refill, and further decreasing the chances of asking for round three. One never really makes it past the first refill due to this. As a result of this fundamental and seemingly statistical conundrum regarding carbo-stamina, it starts to seem that the concept of bottomless fries is actually not all that advantageous to the patron yet at the same time does not seem to cost the restaurant all that much to maintain. That just feels like perfect, devious, strategic marketing and economics. Olive Garden also has a similar system with its soup, salad, and breadsticks, which are also heavy in the carb department, naturally limiting how much one can consume. One might ponder how many fries one might feasibly need to eat to stick it to the burger man, And apparently, according to a comment from an alleged hotel chef, they state, 
At $1.99 for a side of bottomless fries, you would need to eat 1.913 pounds of fries to beat the food cost. Buying ketchup in squeeze bottles comes out to 8.1 cents an ounce, actually about 20% more expensive than the fries you're dipping. So the real takeaway here is this. If you're trying to screw Red Robin, skip the fries, eat the ketchup, end quote. December 19th. PingGoogle.com-T will give some more info on pings. Well, this is awkwardly written. Let's talk about ping, a basic command line utility that can test connectivity to another network resource, be it a router, website, or anything with an IP address, quite frankly. One could even ping a crockpot if it was networked. Specifically, in the Windows operating system, the standard ping command, with only the destination address specified as a parameter, will make four attempts to connect and provide detail on the round-trip latency. At the end of the four attempts, there is a little summary detailing the statistics. When one adds a dash T to the command, the ping will infinitely test the connection until one breaks the sequence by pressing Ctrl-C. What I got wrong about this thing learned was that this mode does not technically display more information other than, well, more pings. I guess it comes down to wording, but hey, at least I learned about the dash T switch in the first place, which is a really good way to measure latency in near real time. In Unix-based operating systems such as macOS and Linux, the ping command will always default to the infinite test mode anyway, so it's really only a differential on Windows to begin with. The dash T switch is still something I use to this day, so learning it back then was a quality and long-lasting thing learned for me. December 20th. Gas gauges have an arrow pointing at which side of the car the gas intake is on. You know, sometimes it's the dumbest little things that you miss. Most cars have a little subtle arrow pointing to the left or right, nearby the gas gauge, informing one what side of the car the intake is on, so one doesn't embarrass themselves at a gas station parking on the wrong side of a pump. Some stations, of course, have hoses that are long enough to extend to either side of the car, but still, it doesn't make it any less awkward. Anyways, that's about it. It's a really subtle yet immensely useful feature of a car's dashboard that you may or may not have ever heard of until now. December 22nd, how to use combo fix. In my younger days, I kept up on handy utilities one could keep on a flash drive for fixing computers. Back then, the nature of the jobs I worked at required having a breadth of knowledge to sweep away viruses and the like. One of the tools I wasn't super aware of that existed in the computer fixing scene was known as ComboFix. Hosted on bleepingcomputer.com, the description of the utility is as follows. Quote, ComboFix is a program created by SUBS that scans your computer for known malware, and when found, attempts to clean these infections automatically. In addition to being able to remove a large amount of the most common and current malware, ComboFix also displays a report that can be used by trained helpers to remove malware that is not automatically removed by the program." End quote. 
In retrospect, this was an oddly simple tool with a somewhat wide yet narrow range of capabilities. I don't really think this tool is exactly viable today, as the nature of computer viruses and malware has shifted substantially since the Windows XP and 7 days. ComboFix's main page even states up front that it only works as far as Windows 8 and not even Windows 8.1. What makes matters even worse is that it seems the tool is having issues running in present day without some modifications if any of the recent comments on the page have anything to say about it. The screenshots for this program are real nostalgic, evoking the bad old days of Windows XP and degunking people's computers from back then. Maybe I've been away from it for far too long. But nowadays, most malware just feels like a one-way street with ransomware that you cannot easily fix due to files being legitimately encrypted. In the old days, these viruses were usually just fake alerts that loaded annoying adware or something, as opposed to actually doing damage. I wish the internet was a bit less evil than it is today, but hey, time marches on I guess. I wouldn't recommend using Combo Fix today as it is obviously a relic of a bygone era and likely won't fix any current virus issue you are facing today. Not to mention it was never updated to work with Windows 8.1, let alone 10 or 11, and apparently it needs a lot of massaging to get working in the OS's it supported in its time even. December 23rd, Napoleon Dynamite had a $400,000 budget but grossed $46,140,956. This is a movie that seems to divide audiences into one of two camps. Either you love it or absolutely hate it. I'm in the former camp. This movie is very different from most others, and that's a difficult task to pull off. Without really much of a hard plot, problem to solve, villain to overcome, or even any goal to achieve, Napoleon Dynamite just sort of gives you a slice of life in a Midwestern town set in a dubious time period that sometimes fits the profile of the 90s, but sneaks in references to other time periods that makes it feel like one can't ever be fully certain on when it takes place. A lot of the film's memorable moments come from the delightfully awkward, hilarious, and infinitely quotable moments. I remember not being able to make it halfway down a hallway at school without hearing someone yelling out, Tina, you fat lard, come get some dinner, combined with maybe some line from Austin Powers' gold member. The early 2000s were a weird time. One of the things that I really enjoy about Napoleon Dynamite is that it's mostly just a quiet and chill kind of experience. The music is never super bombastic, and the scenes do a great job at letting the audience breathe and feel where they are. It always feels like a movie that fits right into watching on a sunny weekday afternoon in the summer on a small TV. Not really sure why, but it fits that vibe perfectly. Anyways, it is accurate that the film had a pretty low budget and ended up making nearly 10 times as much at the box office. Not to mention the subsequent sales from DVDs and merchandising, after the fact, likely kept the dollar signs kinetic. December 24th, Mario originally was supposed to have a gun. In the formative years of the plumber from New York, Mario was supposed to come packing heat. Super Mario Bros. franchise creator Shigeru Miyamoto 
confirmed in an interview with Famitsu Magazine that, quote, during much of development, the controls were A for shoot bullets, B to dash, and up on the control pad to jump, said Miyamoto. The bullets wound up becoming fireballs later. We originally thought about having a shoot 'em up stage where Mario jumps on a cloud and shoots at enemies, but we dropped it because we wanted to focus on the jumping action. The sky-based bonus stages are the remnants of that idea, you can say. In the end, we realized that being able to shoot all the fireballs you want while running gave Mario too much of an advantage. So instead, we had to make it so that you could only shoot one fireball when you start running. That freed up the A button, and we made that the jump button. I really wanted to have A be the action button and make you press up for jump, but it definitely worked out better for Mario in the end." end quote. It didn't seem like an outwardly bombastic feature, but it was present in the planning stages of the game, likely following a template of similar games of the era. December 26th, Ultrabooks have specific specs needed to be called Ultrabooks. Oh, Ultrabooks. What a stupid name for a stupid notebook made by stupid people. Okay, maybe that was a little harsh but I never understood the hype for these things. In 2011, I feel there was a growing backlash against the netbook genre of laptops, citing poor performance, cramped ergonomics, and an unsatisfying experience that was better suited by a regular laptop and perhaps a tablet. This was also roughly less than a year before the first Microsoft Surface was released, so we weren't yet in a fully developed two-in-one computing world either aside from oddball Android tablets or iPads, with unsatisfactory keyboard attachments. Intel tried to aim for that sweet MacBook Air money and create a trademark and a standard of computers that could be fully featured yet maintain great battery life and processor performance. When Windows 8 launched, I remember it being married to the Ultrabook concept, with a friend who worked at a computer store often lampooning the concept in Skype calls pretending it was all you needed. Windows 8, Ultrabooks. I bet the specs required to meet the Ultrabook designation likely came down to ensuring quality control, that of which netbooks didn't quite have. Some were great, while a large quantity of others were not great. A course correction was obviously needed, but I feel the Ultrabook sort of faded into obscurity in a manner that netbooks did not, ironically. I distinctly remember netbooks with their funky form factors and creative designs, while ultrabooks just sort of faded out in my memory entirely. I think it's largely because ultrabooks just sort of look like generic laptops without any exciting features. Most of them didn't even have touchscreens by this point anyway, so there was basically no real compelling advantage to them other than a templated spec sheet and marketing. December 27th. Dell laptops in 2001 used to cost $1,200. I'm kind of embarrassed that I even wrote this down as a thing learned. Yeah, Steve, basic inflation and the progression of technology is a clear indicator that, yeah, stuff was expensive back in the day, especially laptops. I don't think it's fair to say that all Dell laptops might have cost a static $1,200 in 2001, but perhaps that was more of an average price. One article even argues that some other brand laptops could cost four times as much if the Apple PowerBook G4 Titanium was any indicator. 
There is a YouTube channel called LGR that has many fantastic videos profiling laptops from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, discussing price points and providing perspective on just how ridiculously expensive it was to own a mediocre laptop in those days. It took quite a bit of time for mobile technology to equate to the desktop world, and even then, it's never a given that this will remain a constant. So the next time that you complain about how a decent laptop costs $500, just remember that they used to often default to the four-figure ranges just a few decades ago. December 28th, there is a Fantasy StarCraft League. Fantasy sports is a strange world, most associated with football and baseball, but did you know that certain dedicated fans even partake in fantasy leagues centered around esports? Yeah, I think it's weird too. Fantasy football and baseball is fun because the games and players are incredibly high profile and enough people understand it to get in on the fun and be competitive with friends and colleagues. With esports though, I don't know, it just doesn't feel the same to me. I have my own personal thoughts on esports and just how seriously it should be taken, having briefly experimented in that sphere before, but that's not the focus here. I was having some trouble trying to find credible information on Fantasy StarCraft in particular, but in 2014 at least, there was a BlizzCon ESL Fantasy League that incorporated StarCraft, among other games, as part of their lineup. It also doesn't help that there either is or was a professional StarCraft player that went by the name of Fantasy, as well as a map in the game, also titled Fantasy. So that made searching online for period-appropriate literature way more complicated than it had to be. The general idea of fantasy esports can be summarized fairly well by an article I found, written by John Guardiosi, stating, quote, Players act as a manager and create a custom roster with their favorite players using a salary-capped team budget. Each custom roster then competes on a daily basis against every other player's teams. What keeps things interesting is that, much like any traditional sport, strategies will vary from week to week, depending on which teams are playing against each other." End quote. Sounds largely like fantasy football, right? It's just a matter of adapting the concepts to competitive and professional online gaming. December 29th how to register Apple products, and where to see them. Oh boy, nothing like bookkeeping. So in a previous episode, I established that our student TV station had been burgled, and we lost a Mac Pro as well as some other equipment. At this point, I was in the wilderness trying to figure out what to even do, and I guess one of the steps I decided to take was register the machines to my Apple ID to at least see if there was some way of tracking them or stopping the thief from registering the stolen computer on their own. On the 23rd, I had also reached out to the town's police department to get an investigation started, but unfortunately we never ended up finding out who stole the equipment or what became of it. The only other information I got was that apparently there was a similar theft of iMacs from a computer lab in the computer science building just a little under a week later. So there is certainly a chance that these thefts were related. Luckily, I had photos and documentation of the serial numbers for all of the computers in the TV station's editing room, so it wasn't a problem to get them registered with Apple at least. In the newer times, Apple product registration is generally automated and done via the internet. 
but in these old days, I guess we had to do it manually. Not to mention that the workstations were technically a communal resource, so initially registering it to a personal account didn't quite feel like the right move. By this point, however, we were in desperation mode, so I at least got them attached to my account in the meantime, which was better than nothing. At some point, I think I either removed them from my account or they aged out, because they no longer appear in my list of devices today. Oh well, at least I still have the email receipts. December 30th, 250 by 250 is a good resolution for Skype profile pictures. Now this is a classic. Remember Skype? Remember when calling people via a computer as opposed to a phone was a novelty? Remember when that didn't burn you out? Remember when the idea of a video call was still futuristic? Yeah, those were the days. Before the days of Teams, Slack, Zoom, Discord, and whatever else does this kind of thing now, Skype was the mainstream solution for almost everybody. It was also a cornerstone of online gaming communications for a little while in my friends group. It wasn't the greatest in terms of bandwidth consumption nor efficiency, as my previous investigative analysis from May 22nd blew the lid off of, but it did get the job done in a pinch, I suppose. One could set up a Ventrilo or Mumble server if they really wanted, but that was more technically involved. Of course, configuring your profile photo is a major ritual when it comes to customizing your account, and I remember Skype having a few challenges back in the day. I remember the application was fiddly in terms of what it did and did not accept for file formats, and a resolution of 250 by 250 was an all-around safe benchmark for a picture size that would fit in all the ways it would be resized and cropped. I found an old forum post from about a year and a half later claiming that the Skype website of the era stated that Skype avatars are not automatically resized as long as they are 96 by 96. So I guess this kind of leaves things a bit open-ended depending on the desired effects. I guess this also means that my own inference of a 250 by 250 picture being good enough isn't quite statistically correct when run against the official recommendation, being roughly 2.6 times the size, and while not exactly scaling in the same manner. I guess I either didn't care all that much or thought the end result was good enough, and sometimes that's all you need. And finally, December 31st, VNC on the iPad. I've probably hammered it home far too much that the iPad wasn't very useful to me in its formative years. It was a far cry from a laptop, and software restrictions locked down a lot of useful functions that I grew to rely on. Sure, it might have been a better appliance for the masses, but it was a disappointment for power users. One could cheese this aspect by using a VNC app on the iPad to remote into a more capable system, however. As an example, perhaps I could connect to and control my laptop from the iPad, expanding the horizons just a little bit. In 2011, I remember it was a bit tough to find a half-decent VNC app that worked intuitively, but on this day I found one and it worked well enough where I decided to invest into learning how it worked. I believe Real VNC was the app that won out and I even got it on some event where it was a free download as opposed to paid. It seems the app is free today, 
but I remember that distinctly not being the case back then, so I guess that changed at some point. And that's it. That's the end of the things learned in 2011. After 42 episodes and roughly 18 hours worth of stuff to talk about. What a ride. It was a diverse year of what I'd describe as three primary eras. The era of living in a single dorm on campus, the summer era of living in a dodgy apartment while doing summer jobs, along with briefly moving back home, and then the fall semester senior year on campus suite era, in which it was the last hurrah in terms of undergraduate fall semesters. I really enjoyed all three of these in their own unique way, with their own stories to tell and pleasant moments to reminisce upon. So where do we go from here? Of course, while this is technically a calendar year milestone, I didn't technically stop writing down daily things learned. And we simply continue onward into 2012, starting with January 1st. I couldn't really find a lot of things worth noting regarding extra topics for these final two weeks of the year, and that sort of makes sense. Two topics I skipped were random facts about using iOS, as well as a gameplay mechanic for a character in League of Legends named Caitlyn. I didn't have anything to say about either of these, so that's why they became footnotes. My calendar for these two weeks was totally empty in the midst of winter break, so things effectively slowed to a crawl by this time, not to mention holidays and whatnot. A few emails were sent and received regarding the computer thefts, but nothing of note really came out of these discussions. For some reason, I have a picture of a roommate holding up a bag of Emerald Harmony Trail Mix, presumably to be used as a reference during a grocery run or something. Sometimes the photos you take and save are really weird out of context. A while back, I threw up a brief update on the podcast regarding the current state of things and how I decided to change the episode schedule and structure a bit. This has worked out for me from a recording and editing standpoint, but perhaps as you might be able to tell, by the time you're listening to this, you might have noticed this episode is either releasing right at the last minute or maybe a day or two late. And that just boils down to me not quite finding the time to get this out the door in a timely manner. I don't necessarily want to say that I'm going to change the format again, but maybe I'll just say that there's a chance that the episodes for 2012 may arrive in a more lax fashion as opposed to a perfect and rigid schedule like the 2010 and 2011 episodes were. I hope that is okay. We'll see how that pans out. If you enjoyed Things Learned, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and catch up on any previous episodes if you want to check out the backlog. I figure the end of a season is a good time to say that. If you want to leave any feedback, I think the best way to express it would be to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you rate podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it, as the more ratings a show has, the more visible it seems to become, or so they say. Also do me a favor and feel free to recommend this program to anyone whom you think might like it. Any and all show notes and music credits are available in this episode's info or notes pages, depending on the app and medium that of which you are listening to this podcast on. I'm glad you've taken the time to listen to things learned, and I hope to talk to you again when we start down the path of reviewing the year 2012. Be well, and thanks for listening.